What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Here with Chris Justin and Ethan Janney from the Run With It podcast. They've been on the show before. Uh, I think we did, when was our last episode? Like in January, we did kind of an idea riff episode where I came on and shared some of my startup ideas. And today what we're going to do is all three of us are going to share just random stories and ideas that we've heard of that we might think would be good for indie hackers to run with in 2021. And this is kind of the whole theme of your show. So Chris, why don't you explain like how your show works? Yeah, sure. Run With It is a podcast where we bring on successful CEOs and other founders to talk about business ideas that they love, but they don't have time to do themselves. It's very action-oriented stories. It's riffing. We use the word half-baked a lot to talk about the ideas on the show. Our goal is actually to, uh, tongue-in-cheek goal is to get them to sabotage their own company by becoming so distracted with the new idea that they just split their attention and go off and do that. Yeah, no, actually, we, we claim that we're hired by their competitors to distract them from their primary business idea. Oh, that's perfect. I'm going to have to hire you guys to uh, get the new CEO of Product Hunt on here so they don't crush any hackers. <laughs> there you go. So we got a, a, a giant doc here with a bunch of different notes. Chris, you got a story here that says flying cars are actually coming. What's the deal there? Yeah, this is. Uh, we talked about this recently on the Run With It podcast. And it struck me because people have heard about flying cars forever, right? Henry Ford tried to popularize flying cars back in the day. Obviously, never worked. A lot of technological breakthroughs that had to happen, but it's on the verge of being here. I will I will venture to say that everyone listening to this podcast within 10 years will have an opportunity to ride in a flying car. I think it's actually that close to coming out. Part of the reason that it's happening is there's this uh, flush of, of money going to flying cars, to uh, startups via SPACs. The super popular going public, the traditional route has been it's becoming less and less popular because you basically have to do this whole roadshow and advertise yourself to these banks and they take a huge cut and founders don't like it. They want to keep as many of their billions of dollars as they possibly can. Yeah, it's interesting about that. It's a little bit of an aside, but it turns out that they're likely to have less money overall going via SPAC. The fees are like three to four times higher going via SPAC. It's just much less complex. Like the broker fee in itself is five and a half percent usually. So anyway, three flying car companies, more accurately known as EVTOL companies, electric uh, vertical takeoff landing companies have gone public or are going public via SPACs in the last two and a half months alone. The latest one is Lilium. Lilium was started in 2015 by Daniel Vigand. He worked out the engineering specifications for the company for you know flying cars while many of his friends were out drinking, which uh, at least makes me feel bad about my own life decisions. But anyway, he worked it out. He borrowed some money. He persuaded suppliers to provide some free parts in order to begin building a prototype. Once he had that prototype, they raised money from investors like uh, co-founder of Skype, Nicholas uh, Zenstrom, and uh, Tencent invested $90 million into them. The company is now worth $3.3 billion. They got uh, $830 million, they believe, of proceeds via a SPAC. And I mean, funding aside, there's obviously a ton of momentum into uh, this technology from a, a financial perspective, but technologically... I want to talk about why this is going to happen. Two main reasons. 
cost of batteries is coming down. And two, autonomous algorithms and infrastructure is on the verge of figuring all of this out for flying cars. I've always just assumed that like the reason why flying cars don't work out is not because the technology is super hard, but because we don't actually want every person to have a car they can fly into the side of your house uh, where the consequences of crashing are a lot higher than crashing like a normal car. Well, I think that's probably true for drones. It would be super annoying if everyone had a, a small <laughs> drone out there. But right now, these are way more expensive than the average consumer can actually use. The lowest end that we saw is like 600K or so. So, do you have any idea why people are so excited about in- investing? You say the technology is making it easier well, one of the use cases I think is, is um, if you imagine flying into JFK and trying to get into Manhattan, if you've ever tried to do that trip in a taxi or public transit, it's just, it's a bitch to do. And a flying car, they promise to be able to get you from from JFK to Midtown Manhattan for 70 bucks in 10 minutes. Okay. So, it's a cheap helicopter ride, basically. Super cheap helicopter. It's super quiet too. That's another benefit of it as well less polluting than helicopters. The the runtime for eVTOLs, they're expecting to be able to run for about 2,000 hours per year. Average helicopter is only able to operate for about 300 hours per year. So, it's a step change improvement in in number of ways. The batteries just need to get there and I think that's going to happen with Tesla. I don't anticipate any indie hackers going out and starting a, a flying car company. I'm not advocating for that by any means. I mean, that's not the reason I'm bringing this idea out here to you. But I think that... Why are you indie- bringing this idea out here, Chris? <laughs> Why am I? One, it's super <laughs> cool. Like, how cool is it? How cool is it to be able to fly a flying car? That's, that's going to be awesome. Two, of course, there's going to be a huge infrastructure need that's going to come about as a result of these vehicles. And I, I wouldn't want to bet on a specific company. I mean, there are literally hundreds who are trying to do this, but you can bet that one of them is going to win. And there are like certain things that are going to have to happen in order for for uh, this technology to take off. No pun intended. I wonder what you could do as an indie hacker like before any of this stuff gets launched. Like, okay, it might be 5, 10, 15 years before these even take off. What can you do now? And probably like the easiest thing you can do with with anything as an indie hacker, just a content business. For example, you could start a, a newsletter for, I don't know, flying cars or futuristic industry news and just like scoop up as much media, as much news, do interviews with the people behind the companies and others who are interested and just sort of following the tech and knowing what's going on. Uh, probably like investors primarily would subscribe and might pay for upgraded sort of, you know, behind the scenes news and insights and updates that other people don't have access to. That ties in nicely with the idea that you had brought in here, right? About alpha sites. Yeah. So this is a, a whole different idea. I uh, it's actually kind of a story. My buddy Fred messaged me last year and told me that he was getting paid a thousand dollars an hour to have phone calls about the QA testing industry because he runs a company around testing. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm interested. Like, I'm an expert on a, quite a few topics. I want to get paid a thousand dollars an hour for my expertise. And apparently, there are a number of these sort of expert Q&A services out there where big companies will pay these companies money to connect them with an expert and just talk to them on the phone for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, however long it takes. And so one of them is called Alpha Sites. And I was like, all right, cool, I'm going to sign up for this. And I did. And that was it had to be like six, seven months ago. I just completely forgot about it. And then two weeks ago, I got an email from my Alpha Sites sales representative and she was like, hey, Cortland, are you an expert in you know, technology XYZ? Because uh, we've got a company on the line that might want to talk to you. 
And I'm like, I sure am. Let's talk. So I got on the phone with her and kind of proved to her that I knew my stuff, which was interesting because she had no idea what it was. She was just trying to, I guess, evaluate if I sounded like I knew my stuff. And uh, she was like, cool. All right. Well, you know, what time are you available to connect to the client? And I'm like, uh, anytime, Thursday or Friday, but like, what, what's the rate? And she's like, well, it's going to be either uh, we could send you a nice bottle of wine or it'll be like, you know, $75 for the call. And I was like, well, this is not what I was led to, <laughs> led to believe by my friend. It's a nice bottle of wine. Uh, it's not really worth my time. So I was like, well, uh, I'm sorry, sales rep. I won't say her name here, but uh, I actually, you know, would only really do this for something closer to $1,000. Uh, and she's like, oh, $1,000. That's about 10 times <laughs> what I initially offered. So she immediately counters like, I'll pay you $300 to do it. And I'm like, well, 300 is nice. Like, I appreciate you coming up. But I'm also in the back of my mind, like, wow, she offered $75 knowing she would go to 300 instantly. <laughs> yeah. We went back and forth. And eventually, uh, she was like, you know, I can't go above $500 an hour. I have to talk to my manager. And I was like, well, that's cool. You know, like, it was cool talking, getting to know you. Uh, it's really not worth my time for less than $1,000 an hour. And so we hang up the phone. And then like 15 minutes later, I get an email. And she's like, we can do $1,000 <laughs> an hour for the call. So uh, how did this call end up? Basically, this guy worked for an investment firm. And this investment firm is investing something like $100 million into a particular space over the next couple of years. And so they just have like a million of it allocated to research. So they don't care about like hiring full-time analysts to spend thousands of dollars an hour talking to experts. And this guy knew literally nothing about the subject area. He knew zero. And he was just asking those basic questions. And it was pretty fascinating to me because you wouldn't think that anybody would pay a thousand dollars an hour to basically ask questions that they could probably Google or email someone for. And yet there's thousands of people doing this. And there's a lot of these expert networks. And so the idea here is like, you know, how could any hackers take advantage of this? And there's quite a few different ideas. I wonder what you guys think. You probably could bring a service like this to people who are a little bit less rich than these hedge funds and major investors who nevertheless need to do research. You know, at the very low end, there might be podcasters who need to do research on guests and you could connect them to, I don't know, expert researchers or something and get them all of their prep sheets filled out for, I don't know, $50 an episode and make it a thousand times easier to run your podcast. Or in the middle end, you might have CEOs of startups who are trying to figure out basically, you know, what industry to move into or which uh, marketing channels to tackle. And there aren't really that many services. Like nobody's ever emailed me and like tried to run a sales process for indie hackers and said, hey, I see this is how your business works. Let me sell you a package of information to help you grow or help you distribute your services, et cetera. And so it seems like there's just a market for basically doing research and connecting people to experts that is criminally under-targeted just because of the value that people are willing to exchange for this kind of information. Yeah, I think that's it's definitely underused. I uh, personally have had some experience with this putting myself in that investor's shoes, albeit at a much smaller scale. Earlier this year, I won a contract, marketing consulting contract, five figures a month with uh, a company. And part of the reason I was able to pull that is because I found someone on Clarity.fm who is an expert in healthcare sales and insurance and super complicated topic that I knew nothing about, similar to, I'm sure that investor contacting you, charged 200 bucks an hour. And I was happy to pay him for as much time as he'd be willing to spend with me. I was happy to pay you that because that got me the contract with this company. They were super happy to, to have that connection, super happy that I did that research. And you know, it's, it's certainly worth more than that to me. Yeah, I'm on their website right now, clarity.fm. It says startup advice from world-class experts. 
And so you find an expert, you request a call. It's almost the exact same thing as alpha sites, but targeted at startups. Yeah, I think it sounds it, it, there's less friction to it too, because you can just sign up there. You set your rate. People message you directly. You can, you know, you, you don't have that negotiation with the bottle of wine and gallon of milk or whatever. <laughs> you just get right into to messaging people and yeah, setting up your deals. Yeah, so they're all like sorted by basically price per minute. I'm looking through their their uh, list of people. You can see get top tier PR media exposure for your company. Some guy charging seventeen dollars a minute which is actually more than my $1,000 an hour rate. Someone giving just business strategy and marketing advice for $5 a minute, Stuart McDonald. There's a, b- a bunch of people on here. You could actually do this as a, as a founder. Like, Let's say you're trying to get your business off the ground, you don't have enough funding, and you're not making revenue. If you are an expert in a particular domain, like you could list yourself on one of these expert exchanges and hopefully get enough business and enough calls. Maybe you just spend your Monday on the phone all day talking about your industry, and then that gives you, you know, enough money to pay for rent and servers and internet costs. I wanted to get into BitCloud. This is the one idea that you brought up, Corlins, that I was like, I was pumped to talk about. So I did a whole episode on BitCloud the other day with uh, Mubashar Iqbal. And BitCloud, like, I didn't get it at all at first. My friend sent me uh, a link to it. it. was like, sign up for this. Just do it. But the idea is that it's like a decentralized social network like built on the blockchain. So that's a lot, right? Um, decentralized social network. The whole point is it's a social network that's not meant to be owned by anybody. So for years, social networks have been owned by these huge corporations, by Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, Jack Dorsey at Twitter. And uh, people have been trying to build some sort of like network owned by the people for a long time. Because then essentially the people own it and we can essentially not have to look at ads. We can pay ourselves money instead of paying these corporations money. And we can sort of, I guess, vote or collaborate on what we want our policies to be rather than having you know Twitter decide what is and isn't free speech on the internet. And so the challenge with all of these networks in the past is that they've always failed because it turns out it's really hard to grow a social network. And just because you want it to be decentralized doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you have any real chance of succeeding. But BitCloud seems like it might succeed. So they just launched in March. They have, I think, something like $240 million now (laughs) in a wallet, basically, worth of Bitcoin, where people have put in a ton of money. And that's because the entire network is built on the blockchain and runs on, basically, Bitcoin. Or this actual, this this new coin they created called BitCloud. And so if you create an account on BitCloud, it's almost exactly like Twitter. But Chris, you would have your own coin, like the Chris coin. And Ethan, you'd have your own coin, like the Ethan coin. And if I think that, like other people are going to start buying your coin soon and that you know your stature is going to rise, I can buy your coin now, just like you're a stock, basically, and invest in you. And what's cool about it is it's kind of a blanket investment. I'm not investing in any particular project. I'm not investing in your podcast. I'm just investing in you as a person. And so if I invest in you and then later on a bunch of other people invest in you, your stock goes up, your coin goes up, and now all the coins that I bought from you are worth more money and now I can sell them and make a tidy profit. So if I just trust in you guys as people, it doesn't really matter what specific project that you build in the future, I can essentially just invest in all of it and sort of capitalize on that. And the last sort of segment of how it works is that you can, because you see who all your investors are, all the people who own your coins, you can essentially create rules for them. You can say, oh, the only people who can respond to my tweets are people who own at least you know one Ethan coin. Or the only people who can DM me are people who've bought at least 10 of my coins. Which should, and I think it kind of does, contribute to like a lot of positivity, where instead of having a bunch of haters who are following you and talking to you, you have people who authentically believe in you and want to support you, who are going to be retweeting your projects and asking you questions, etc. So that's the dream. The risk is that it's, an entirely, it's entirely a scam, or that it's going to get hacked, 
and that everybody's going to lose all the money that they put into the platform. And so uh, I was pretty careful in my episode a couple of weeks back to to make sure that people didn't you know, take my enthusiasm for BitCloud as any sort of investment advice. Like I put maybe $5,000 into this. Uh, I would not put any more money into it than you can afford to actually lose. I think there's something to BitCloud. I think that this isn't its final form. And I don't think that BitCloud is going to be the one to, to figure this out long term. It's not really decentralized right now. All the money's going to, like you said, uh, one wallet, right? Like that's right. <laughs> you can't claim to be decentralized like that. So that's a major problem. It's still on on that platform. It's not really open source. And two, they're taking a large part of the pie for creating the network. And let's say, for example, Elon Musk is the top one on there. He's got three and a half million BitClout to his name, something like that. Yeah, I'm checking right now. He's got. 365 coins, which are worth each $70,000. And in total, his, mar- his market cap on the platform, as if he's a stock, is $25 million, of which he owns like eight. So theoretically, if Elon Musk joined the platform, he would have $8 million with the BitClout. And he hasn't done anything, just because other people have invested in his coin. Yeah. So there are two ways of looking at it. One is he hasn't done anything and he gets that money. The other is he's seeding 60% of the value of himself to this platform for the fact that they created it. So if it does become this universal thing where BitClout is the way that you measure your self-worth in a financial way, then I wouldn't give up that much of my financial stake to to a platform like that. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because it's like it's weird to have a dollar amount next to your name. And in a way, like you see that dollar amount and you think, oh, this is my worth as a person. But the reality is it's not really your worth as a person. This is just like on this one platform, how much money have people invested into what they think you're worth on this platform? And in Elon's case, or really in anybody's case, you're not really doing very much, you know? Like he's not really doing anything, you know? Like it's he's done nothing for people to come and give a bunch of money to BitClout. And like ideally they don't lose all their money. But uh assuming it all works as planned, I think it's very entertaining to look to log in and see like how much my BitCloud is worth and see what other people are buying and selling. Uh I don't take it very personally. And to be honest, like I think, you know, some of the cooler things that people are doing is they're building side projects on top of BitCloud. So you don't really need to be like this cool celebrity. And honestly, it's probably a little risky to even post on BitCloud because it's built on the blockchain. Everything you post is on the blockchain, which means it's completely public and it's impossible to delete forever <laughs> for all time. So if you say anything even a little bit risque, then, you know, you might be canceled 10 years from now and, you know, we're murdering all the people who once ate meat or whatever, whatever's going on in the future. And you were bit clouding about eating meat in 2021. I actually don't think that that piece is that big of a deal. I think that if you post on Twitter, if you become famous enough, people can find that. People's deleted tweets from 10 years ago are still coming back to, to bite them, right? Like Internet Archive is, is going to is essentially doing what that blockchain is doing in that regard. I know people who are anticipating getting famous, for example, working on new startups and raising a lot of money who will go through and just like delete all of their old tweets. I know people who delete all their tweets now. And on BitCloud, that's literally not possible. But your mileage may vary up to you to figure out what you want to do. But I'm the most interested in is like, what kind of side projects would you build on top of BitCloud? So Mubs has a cool one called BitCloud Follow, where you basically just recommends who should you follow on BitCloud. That's literally all it is. He looks at the interesting people who are on there. He groups them into categories. And then he created a, a profile on BitCloud for BitCloud Follow. And I think that profile itself is now popular enough that its coin is worth like $1,500. And so the total market cap for that profile is $80,000 or something. And Mubs is doing an AMA on Indie Hackers today. He said he's put in $1,000 into BitCloud. And now it's theoretically worth $40,000. 
he can't withdraw it because there's no withdrawals on the platform yet. But one day, if he can, he made a bunch of easy money by basically building something that other people believe in. And he probably wouldn't withdraw all that money at once because people would probably stop believing in his accounts. And so it's kind of an incentive to keep it in, keep the coin price high, and show people that you're not just kind of a scammer building something that's going to disappear. You're not building vaporware, but you're actually building you know, a cool side project. This also reminds me a different project, but similar. Zed Run is a digital horse racing game built on the blockchain. And it's uh, one, it's a fully functioning game where it has a, a number of factors. It has the uh, NFT aspect of these horses, digital horses are unique. But it also, the really cool thing that I, is pulled into it is the genetics component of it. So when you buy a horse, you um, can analyze their bloodlines and genotype and breed type. And then you can breed horses and you can actually like, do a digital equivalent of the real world of, of horse racing out there. I haven't gotten into it at all. It's, it's like a steep learning curve, apparently, but it's super immersive from what it looks like. I, I want to hear your thoughts, both of you, overall on uh, the NFT world. So the idea of an NFT, it's a non-fungible token, the basic idea is it's a way to create digital scarcity. It's a way to say, like, for example, the CEO of Twitter created an NFT for the first tweet that he ever sent. And it's like, this is the only digital representation of this tweet. And someone bought it for, I think, several million dollars. And it's almost like collectible trading cards or something where people will pay you know, tons of money for the rarest Pokemon card or the rarest baseball card or the rarest magic card, but a digital version. And a bunch of artists have grafted onto this. And then, you know, I think there's a guy, what's his name, Beeple, who sold an NFT representation for some digital art he created for like $70 million or $60 million or something crazy. And I am a skeptic. I am not certain that this is going to be popular or even around in another couple of years from now, because I don't think digital scarcity is all that new. I don't think there's any underlying technological shift that make, like for example, Twitter handles are already scarce. If you have a Twitter handle, nobody else can get that Twitter handle because it's a unique row in a database somewhere and nobody else can get it. Our domain names are the same. Our email addresses are the same. There's already a ton of digital scarcity. And uh, the way that NFTs are implemented, for example, like Jack made an NFT for his first tweet. There's nothing stopping him from doing another NFT for that exact same tweet. <laughs> he could do a thousand NFTs for the same tweet. So is it really scarce? You know, Are you really bidding on any scarce resource? The same for um, all the artwork that gets sold. You know, you could do an NFT for a famous painting that you've made, but then you could just do another NFT for the exact same painting. Or anyone who doesn't own that NFT could basically just copy and paste the image. And so is it really digitally scarce or are we all sort of fascinated by like the idea that it could theoretically in some weird way be considered to be scarce, but it's not? Well, it's scarce in the way that diamonds are scarce, right? It's like controlled scarcity. The, the producer is metering out the production such that the value stays high. And if you take advantage of that and you flood the market with product, then yeah, it collapses. That happened in the trading card industry in the 80s and 90s, right? They just figured out that, hey, people want these holographic cards of Mike Piazza or whatever, and let's just make a bunch of them and <laughs> just crash the market. So it's not just about creating digital scarcity per se. You know, there's just also like the, the digital representation of ownership, you know, a place where you can say, I own this and this is the, this is, this is how we know. The argument that there's other forms of doing that already, it's kind of 
like and this you know some people might think it's a valid argument the argument against bitcoin as a as a store of value but you know where people run into a problem like i, I saw this one I, I like this blog this mr money mustache blog this guy talks about like saving and retiring early and stuff and he, he had this argument against cryptocurrency like well you know anything could be scarce like what if we started trading my toenails as you know as currency we could do that but that wouldn't be bitcoin and i was like ah you know i usually appreciate your arguments mr money mustache but it's like the thing that is that people are seeing is potentially valuable about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that it's not only scarce something like gold, but it also has other properties that make it a better gold, right? That you can transfer it more quickly. You don't have to pay a lot of money to store it and move it and protect it, all this kind of stuff. And I think that that's probably what's going on here with the NFTs as well. Yes, there's other ways of making something owned by one person or providing some sort of digital scarcity, but it may be the best way to do it. And that's why you're seeing like, there's a company called Wax, the Worldwide Asset Exchange, who's invested heavily, heavily in NFTs for several years. And the guy running it, William Quigley, is super smart. He's got ton of patents already in the space. And uh, not only is that platform already doing a lot of business around digital collectibles, um, but you know, they're looking to be expanding uh, very soon in the future. They're working with big brands and creating licensing deals and all sorts of things. You know, he foresees a future where, you, you know how you have people trading like uh, tennis shoes on eBay, right? So they, li they literally just like order the tennis shoes because they think it's a good price. They get it shipped to their house and then they put it back up on some other platform in some other way to like resell it at a higher price. So he's envisioning a future where literally, actually you just ship the, those tennis shoes to a central warehouse and people trade the NFT for the tennis shoes, you know, until maybe somebody actually wants to have it in their house. And it kind of sounds ridiculous to people who aren't in collecting, but to people who are in collecting, they're already doing it, you know? I mean, it's, you can't argue with, I think sometimes it sounds silly to trade comic books or, or baseball cards, but people are doing it. So I don't think it's going to go away. I think that's what it comes down to is ultimately, is there a market there and are there people who are willing to do it? And if there are, it doesn't really matter what the utility is. Nothing really matters. The fact is there's a buyer and it, there's buyers, there's going to be sellers. And like, there are like market dynamics, you know, like, as you said, Chris, the baseball like trading card market collapsed at various points in the past. I worry if that might happen with NFTs. You know, there really isn't that much to stop you from opening a new marketplace for NFTs. Uh, there might be a point where there's so many sellers and not enough buyers. And to be fair, like that doesn't mean it's the end of NFTs. Like the art world doesn't have that many buyers. It's not that big of a market altogether, right? There aren't that many super rich people collecting fine art and yet it exists and it thrives. And it's something that we've known about. Maybe the NFT world will be something like the art world, but I am very bearish that in two or three years, it's going to be as popular and as hot as it is today. I want to throw out one example of an NFT that I think could work before moving on to a slightly different blockchain topic. So I think it'd be super cool if someone like Beeple actually created the art on the blockchain live. So each stroke that he did with his virtual paintbrush was recorded on the blockchain. You don't actually see the piece of art. The only way that you can see it is if you have the private key. That would be truly scarce. So maybe that's not the how it, how it ends, but I think that there is possibility for something like that. I like it because it's creative. And if you have a creative piece of art like that, there's a story behind it. You know, whoever owns that now has a really cool story to tell anyone who's like, why did you just spend $8 million on this art you can't even see? And they're like, well, let me explain to you how the blockchain works. And they get this cool, unique story to tell anyone. And like, that's the kind of story that can ratchet up the price of your art. 
Well, and they could see it, right? If they have the private key, like you, right. but you'd literally have to be with them when they open up and sh- you know, it would be a whole experience, you know, it would be very different than any other kind of art. One other point of skepticism I'll, I'll mention on this point is that there's just so many vested interests. Like we saw this with, with, uh, ICOs years ago where people would like create a new coin offering and then they would just pump in millions and millions of dollars to it and make it look like something's happening here. You know, and there are a lot of people who own these NFT platforms and, you know, you see these sales of, of art going for millions of dollars, but no one really knows who exactly is funding this and who's buying it. And it could easily be, in fact, almost certainly is to some large degree, people who own the platforms pumping in a lot of money to drum up excitement, to get other people who are rich to say, oh, this is worth a lot of money. I'm going to buy in. And the art world does this too. Even traditional art, uh, you'll see people basically, you know, pumping up like the initial bid. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over you know the next few years. I think that the interesting thing about the blockchain application is the verifiable nature of the tokens. It's not as much the scarcity because it's Cortland, as you said, like you can duplicate anything, but the verifiable nature does come in handy in other applications, one of which is climate change. One of the big new applications that's coming out is the ability to offset your carbon emissions via a platform like Nori. What Nori does is uh, people in, in corporations can buy these tokens. I think the average person, it's uh, $275 to offset all of your carbon emissions for the year. And when you do that, that money goes to farmers who are implementing sustainable farming practices that absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. Nori takes a little bit of a cut and um, everyone's happy. The reason that you need the blockchain here, because I know you guys are going to ask me this question or maybe the listener has that in mind, is uh, about 50% of the price of carbon offsets goes to overhead legal, compliance, accounting, auditing. And if you can consolidate that, simplify that into a blockchain, which is you know very easy to monitor and verify, then uh, that is actually adding real value to the world in a way that I think is much more lasting and sustainable even than, uh, than NFTs. I love the, the idea, the basic idea behind Nori. So it's N-O-R-I. I'm on their website right now. It's a uh carbon removal marketplace, as you said. And uh, one of the things they do on their homepage that I think is super cool is they just give you the numbers to put things in perspective. So they kind of default you to saying, how much, how many tons of carbon do you want to remove from the atmosphere? And they default it to 16 because they say the average American emits 16 tons of carbon over the course of a year. And they give you other examples too. Like one round trip flight or a cruise can emit about a ton of carbon, literally one ton of carbon. Like these are numbers I didn't know about. And when you put it all into perspective, well, it costs like $15 to remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere. So I could basically cover my entire yearly carbon footprint for, you know, $240 plus their actual transaction fee for this overhead that you're talking about. That seems like a no brainer. It seems like it's such an easy way to feel better about, I guess, the impact that you're having. What I like about this in particular is that, uh, there's always an appetite to like do good in the world. No matter how many years you go back, people have always paid money to donate to charity, et cetera, et cetera. And those are often the, some of the best businesses to start because you know there's a market for it. And then what you need to do is basically figure out, okay, well, how do I, you know, use technology to do this a little bit better than the people in the past? Or how do I, you know, market myself to be a little bit better? And, uh, there's a lot of indie hackers who are doing this. I've talked to John O'Nolan from Ghost, who is creating basically a WordPress competitor. And he's super good at marketing. You know, like five, 10 years ago, he had this whole manifesto and a lot of people hate WordPress apparently. And so like he had a lot of people funding him from the beginning. 
I've talked to uh, Quincy Larson on the podcast who has, he runs freecodecamp.org. And that's like, I think the biggest resource online teaching people how to code. And he's super good at basically breaking down the math. So you can see, okay, for every dollar you donate, there's like 200 hours or something crazy of students actually learning how to code on our platform. So it's super efficient and people get behind that. And I think with something like Nori, the fact that they're breaking it down and they're putting it on the blockchain, they're making sure it's all transparent. You know, is this really that different from other, you know, nonprofit charity organizations? Like not really, except for the fact that they've got their marketing down and their processes down so that people like me, who are maybe a little bit more modern minded, want to do something like this and actually contribute. And so I think a lot more indie hackers can probably do this. If you want to have a social conscious business, socially conscious business, uh, and you're good at marketing and you're good at programming and you know how to use modern technologies, there are a ton of people out there with a lot of money who are willing to donate to charities that actually can, you know, show their work and be more transparent and be more modern than the sort of old school. There's a huge opportunity right now in general with infrastructure and just doing anything. I think like if you throw a dart, you can't miss right now. Like Biden's team is putting out $2 trillion into the economy. I think that the NFTs that we're seeing is the sign of like people have a ton of money and they don't know how to use it productively, honestly. So it's very true. Every startup right now, every deal, I get all these uh, DMs. Or Corlin, are you an angel investor? Uh, we've got a deal for you. By the way, we're oversubscribed, and it's like companies that have like, in my opinion, I'm like, who would invest in this business? And it's like, apparently, lots and lots of really rich people are investing millions of dollars. Uh, it's crazy how much money people, I guess, have saved up over COVID, or how much money is looking for a place to go. Yeah, I think that there's, in terms of opportunity, it's much better opportunity right now to start something than to invest in something. That's an like overall sure. trend. Even if you have the money, just use that to build something and pretty much anything like you, you can do well right now. Another example of a sort of nonprofit that is very modern is, is GiveWell. I love GiveWell. Basically, a, a charity... Well, effective altruism is basically a philosophy about having a very logical approach to helping people. So it's, you know, how do you be as efficient as possible when you're donating money to a charity? And GiveWell was started by these two guys at a hedge fund who were thinking about donating and they started doing all this research. They're like, oh, how do I know how efficient, you know, the particular charity is? How do I know how much of my money is going to the people on the ground versus like overhead and marketing costs and all that kind of stuff? And it turned out there just wasn't very much data. And so they started GiveWell, which is basically a program that evaluates charities and figures out where should you actually donate your money to. And they have their own process and standards. And it's super cool. Like the way these these two guys grew GiveWell was like they were on Reddit and they were on internet forums. And they would ask questions like, hey, what's the best way to find a charity to donate to? And then they'd go on an anonymous account and like answer with GiveWell. You know, they're like doing the same thing that indie hackers would do to grow their websites and their businesses, but they're doing it with uh, their own sort of charity organization. And today I think they've raised something like 60, 70 millions of dollars that they've redirected to like the most efficient charities. I donate to it every year. Like their their most efficient charity is called the Against Malaria Foundation. Basically, they're they're doing, I think, distributing nets in certain places in Africa where like malaria is really bad. And like you can reliably save a life donating three to five thousand dollars to give well, which is crazy. It's like, oh, do I want to upgrade my apartment this year or do I want to like literally save somebody's life? And you know that you're doing it because like they are extremely rigorous about how they evaluate these charities. Like even on their homepage, one of their main tabs says our mistakes. And it's a list of every mistake that GiveWell has made over the last few years, broken into major issues and smaller issues. And they talk about all, you know, we had an error in a spreadsheet that led to this charity getting too much money, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, they don't care about looking bad or looking good. 
They just care about being super effective. If you're asking people to give you their money, especially investors or especially people who are donating to charity and you can create trusts, like that's huge. And there's a whole realm of old school charities and nonprofits that like aren't doing any of this stuff who are still sucking up millions and millions of dollars from investors and donators who could probably be replaced by indie hackers doing, you know, a better job at proving that they are trustworthy and proving that they do care and they are going to show their work, et cetera. I mean, that's also the idea behind this podcast is like getting you two on, getting other people on, having a bunch of people share their stories is it's just creative inspiration. You know, there are people out there working on businesses or trying to come up with business ideas. So uh, I'm glad the two of you guys came on, <laughs> shared a bunch of different stories. You got, I don't know how many episodes of your podcast do you have now? Uh, about 80, I think. I don't know. Something 80 like that. stories. And every, every episode is basically two stories because you have a guest who has a story of their own company and then you have an idea that they're sharing for a new company that could be started. So it's basically 160 ideas, a giant repository of inspiration for people who want to go check out the Run With It podcast. Chris and Ethan, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about where to listen to your show? Yeah, the best way you can find us, search for Run With It on your podcast player of choice. We should be popping up near the top. You'll see a uh, digital representation of, of myself and Ethan. And uh, yeah, you hopefully get inspired by some of the business ideas that you hear on there. All right, guys. Thanks again.